Hey, Big Biology listeners, it's fun drive time. Please remember that we're a nonprofit and we need your help to keep making the podcasts you love. And to stretch your contribution to its max, a super fan of Big Biology is generously providing up to $10,000 in matching funds for each donation. You get to double your support of our Big Biology producers, interns, and artists this time. So please consider making a donation today. Otherwise, the first 20 minutes of the next few shows might sound like NPR does at this time of year. So much airtime on fundraising. There are three ways to support us. The first is a one-time donation, which you can make at our website, bigbiology.org. The second is to sign up as a patron at our Patreon site, which is at patreon.com bigbio. And the last one is a free one. Just spread the word about the show. Twitter, Instagram, whatever. If you like Big Biology, tell a friend and let them pay our bills. Light the fireworks and blow the trumpets. It's the 100th episode of Big Biology. That's a hecta episode for those of you who tend to invoke Greek prefixes unnecessarily. Okay, it's going to be that kind of show, huh? Even episode 100? Have you no respect, man? We considered many options for our 100th episode, but in the end, we decided that it would be fun to pick out just one theme and piece together how different guests have approached it. We picked agency, a totally non-controversial topic, right, Cam? 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 Yeah, we'll hear from Cam later in the show. Let's just say he has different opinions on agency than me and Marty. But why did we choose agency? We chose it because many past guests have convinced us that we really should be paying it a lot more attention in our own research. And all of that unintended cajoling worked. We've come to think a lot more about agency and its implications for the work we do. For instance, it's really helped me to think about how epigenetic marks like DNA methylation might enable organisms to respond plastically and invade new areas. And it's helped me design better experiments on niche construction and thermoregulation in insects. Also, agency, or at least one of its core elements, information, has so resonated with us that we've profoundly changed the way we think about stress in animals. Art and I have been interested in the topic for years, and after talking about information and agency to many guests on Big Biology, we've changed our approach to this topic big time. But in the broadest sense, we chose to focus on agency in the 100th Big Biology episode because it illustrates why so many biologists have called for updates to the modern synthesis. An extended evolutionary synthesis, some have called it. They want a more complete theory of life. Unfortunately, the message of the extended synthesis crowd often came across as the original modern synthesis was incomplete or wrong, which is not just off-putting, it misses the point. The major innovation of the modern synthesis was to take statistical shortcuts and thus make tractable that which until then had been out of reach. It made the complex simple. Darwin's ideas about population change over time were first merged mathematically with the principles of inheritance that Mendel gleaned from his pea plants. Then, Fisher, Haldane, Wright, and others invented concepts like gene types, populations, and relative fitness to predict genetic evolution, and voila, a lot of biology became intelligible. And predictable. Based on a few simplifying assumptions. Here's Dennis Walsh, our guest from episode 62, explaining the modern synthesis. The modern synthesis is a really abstract theory. You take these abstract entities, gene types, and you construct an abstract entity, a population, an assemblage of gene types, and then you apply to the gene types this very abstract parameter, growth rate, relative growth rate, and you can track the dynamics of these abstract populations in this very, very powerful way. And the, uh, While skipping over the organism. Exactly, exactly, leaving them out, right. And, and it's absolutely right that this parameter, fitness or growth rate, 
has all those biological thing, pa things packed into them. Right? It can accommodate any amount of biology. Right? But I think what the defenders of the modern synthesis um, don't do is they don't acknowledge or realize the level of abstraction at which this theory actually works. It's not about uh, the nuts and bolts biology. It's basically identifying a universality phenomenon that we find in uh, thermodynamics. And the, any time you have an assemblage of differentially growing or changing entities, you're going to have this really uh, the, this change in the population of, the, of uh, an ensemble that's expressible at a really high level of abstraction. And I think that's the core of the modern synthesis. That's what makes it so powerful. But, as, but it's not a theory of, of the metaphysics of evolution, or, you know, or as I say in the book, what happens when evolution happens. It's a very poor account of what happens when evolution happens. In this light, it's strange to say that the modern synthesis needs an update because it always rested on what William James called vicious abstraction. By intentionally leaving out many of the details that make life life, we learned things we never knew and made all sorts of progress in animal husbandry, improvements in crop productivity, and even in human medicine. That said, we empathize with calls by some for an extended synthesis. We agree that biology is more complex than the modern synthesizers imagined, and we think it's time to strive for a more inclusive and cohesive theory of life, one that captures its origins, its adaptive operations, and its evolution. To channel Sarah Walker, guest on episodes 9 and 93, we need a model of life that focuses more on the alive parts of life. In my mind, life is a dynamical process, and it's one where you have um, particular informational patterns that are like structuring physical systems across space and time. People get mad that I think a computer is life or a screwdriver is life, but those things literally would not be created without information. Yeah, well, it's consistent. That's okay. Yeah. And, and then alive is the systems that are actively constructing things. They're the ones doing the information processing to actually build those things and, like, and use internalized information to actually do the construction. The modern synthesis took shape at a time in history when inheritance was just coming to be understood, and the molecular revolution, including the discovery of DNA, was just getting underway. Progress via synthesis thinking was great, but, but it also led many subfields of biology to forget about the original vicious abstraction. Most egregiously, genes came to take on causal powers they simply can't have, including the culmination of this forgetfulness, the selfish gene concept. To Richard Dawkins, George Williams, Arvid Ogren, a guest on episode 73, and many others, willow catkins blowing from trees are literally DNA rain. To their way of thinking, one need only understand how the DNA from one willow generation gets into the next. That's it. That's all. Biology done. Nuh-uh. Can't be. The modern synthesis can't be the main paradigm for understanding life if it doesn't explain most of how life is alive, how complex systems emerge and come to be resilient, how homeostasis works, and how collections of sub-entities are integrated into working wholes. One of our very first guests, Massimo Piliucci from episode 7, beautifully laid out the limits of the modern synthesis. But to be fair, he was using Dick Lewinton's analogy. So he said, look, imagine you're building a house. And instead of in the United States where most houses are built of wood, which is why they don't last, uh, <laughs> you, you, you build it you know, the old-fashioned way, the European way, with bricks and lime. Okay? So you say, okay, so you start putting the first layer of bricks and then lime on it and then bricks and lime and bricks and lime. Now, once you get the final house, you could, if you want it, ask the very quantitative question, well, 
what is the weight of the house in bricks and what's the weight of the house in lime? And there is an answer to that question. And I'm sure it would be something like, you know, 98% bricks and 2% lime. Mm. That tells you precisely nothing about how to build a house <laughs> because it isn't about, you know, it's, you're not going to come up with 98 bricks and then two little pieces of bits, pieces of, of lime. And then you say, oh, I got the house. No, you get the house by the specific patterning of the bricks and the line, right? And so the idea there is that even if you could show that, let's say, 90% of, of variation in phenotypes in, in a particular human trait is the result of genetic influences, that still doesn't mean the way in which is usually interpreted. Oh, so genes do all the work and the environment is not important. You take out that 10% in that specific pattern and you get nothing, absolutely nothing, because genes by themselves don't do crap. And yes, you can buy that on a bumper sticker in the big biology store. Massimo was talking here about the importance of phenotypic plasticity, but his point applies more broadly. The modern synthesis focuses on changes in the fraction of variation that things, either genes or environments, explain. But that kind of model doesn't capture much of what we wanted to understand in the first place. How the house comes to take the form it does, and how the house doesn't fall apart soon after being built. Can we come up with another theory of life? A simple one, but also one that better captures the key things that distinguish life from non-life. We think we can, and we think at its core will be the concept of agency. A system's propensity to maintain its integrity by either changing the disruptive external forces it experiences, or adjusting its internal makeup to better suit those challenges and opportunities. Or to blend the words and ideas of a bunch of past guests... Agency is the intentionally cognitive set of activities that a living system uses to achieve dynamic stability. The architecture and updates of the Bayesian priors and its Markov blanket model of the world. In this 100th episode of Big Biology, we focus on agency with input from a subset of our past guests to try to forecast where biology might be going and what values lie in a conceptual transformation. And in the last third of the show, Art and I will talk with the newest host of Big Biology, Cam Gallenbor, on his thoughts and skepticism about agency. I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. And this is Big Biology, episode 100. <laughs> to make a case for agency, let's start at the literal beginning, life's origins. In episode 49, we talk with Nick Lane about this topic and his book, The Vital Question. Most origins of life scientists, at least historically, identify with one of two camps, the RNA first world or the metabolism first world. Nick has feet in both worlds with heavy doses of systems and thermodynamics thinking. The old idea of a primordial soup, it's not, it's not gone away. And, you know, Darwin's warm pond is probably still the dominant idea in the origin of life field, except when we would now call it terrestrial geothermal systems. Um, and a lot of that chemistry works quite well. Uh, you start with cyanide or cyanoacetylene, you use UV radiation, and you're able to make all uh, the building blocks of life. And the problem for me with all of that uh, is beautiful chemistry that works well, but it doesn't look anything like biochemistry. And so you're still left with this question, okay, so we've got all these, all these monomers floating around in solution. What happens next? How do they invent life from there? As you can hear, Nick wonders whether particular conditions on young Earth led to the appearance of simple but self-sustaining complex systems. 
Data from his and other labs show that proto-life processes were originally possible because of the availability of particular forms of matter and energy in particular places. Many sites on early Earth would not have supported lifelike systems, but some might have been just rich and resource-dense enough for those systems to maintain their integrity and eventually reproduce. One way, perhaps the way, that these systems were able to maintain integrity was by instantiating information into their structural elements, which include the nucleic acids that became today's RNA and DNA. Now, it remains a mystery how lifelike systems came alive, from this point of being just a dynamically stable system to the complex homeostatic modular systems that resemble modern microbes. Probably there was no bright line between these stages anyway. An early step in this process must have entailed a separation of internal and external states. Some sort of physical boundary like what would become a cell membrane. Exactly what that first membrane would have been, much less how the inside came to take on such diversity, is to put it lightly, a work still in progress. Nevertheless, according to Carl Friston, our guest in episode 70, all viable complex systems have what mathematicians call Markov blankets. The first barrier must have provided a clear demarcation between outside and in. And to be clear, Carl isn't referring to Markov's blanket as the thing he slept under during particularly cold Russian winters. Rather, Markov blankets are relatively simple interconnected sets of states whereby complex systems shield themselves from entropy. At its simplest, a Markov blanket is just um, a way of partitioning the states of a universe into a system of interest say you or me or the virus or the vegan, and everything else. Um, more specifically, it's a partition, a dividing um, into um, three sets of states. Those states that are internal to a system, those states that are external to the system, and then some intervening states that mediate the exchange between the inside and the outside. So if you were um, a physicist, or if you go back to your sort of um, schoolboy physics, the Markov blanket enshrouds the internal states. And if you're a biologist, then it, you, know, you can think of this as the cell surface. It's the thing that sort of, together with the internal states, constitutes the unit of um, description, of, of discussion, um, and is responsible for mediating the reciprocal, the two-way causal exchange between the inside and the outside. Mathematically, it inherits from the uh, the work of, um, of Perl um, in Bayesian networks and is defined operationally in terms of what's called conditional independence, which mm -hmm. means that, quite simply, if I wanted to know how my internal states are going to change um, in the future, in the immediate future, then I only need to know the Markov blanket states, the surrounding states. I don't need to know the rest of the universe. Carl says that Markov blankets are the key elements in his free energy principle. The idea that all enduring complex systems, including living ones, must resist entropy by minimizing surprise. Carl's surprise here is mathematically defined. He means how unexpected information gleaned from the environment, internal or external, is related to a set of Bayesian priors. These are in effect the parameters that comprise the Markov blanket. Here's Carl on surprise and free energy minimization, ideas he attributed to Richard Feynman. So he was dealing with a problem of trying to characterize the behavior of small particles in quantum electrodynamics, um, uh, trying to understand the probability distributions or the beliefs about different paths that um, particles could take, realize that to describe it properly, um, he had to turn what was an impossible 
integration problem, marginalization problem, into an optimization problem that he could then solve using standard techniques. That's a key move. What that does is it creates, it takes a system that can be described probabilistically, in this instance, quantum mechanics, and converts it into an object that can be understood in terms of optimization. And that means you've now got a normative, teleological gloss on describing how this system works, because it looks as if something is being minimized or max maximized. So what is that thing? Well, the thing is the variation-free energy. So uh, it is exactly the same um, construct um, that is used in machine learning and high-end deep learning like variational autoencoders, where um, the negative physics Feynman variational free energy is known as an evidence lower bound or elbow. So in that name, in that acronym, um, you have the key thing, which is evidence. So what we are talking about now is um, a generic mathematical way of describing the probabilistic dynamics or evolution of any system in a normative sense, in a teleological sense, as trying to um, optimize a bound on evidence. So what is evidence? It's just the probability of some outcomes given some model or hypothesis or construct explanation that you um, consider generated those outcomes. If Carl's hypothesis that all complex systems have Barkov blankets... All the way down, as he likes to say. Lifelike systems have to make choices to endure. They must either push back on the world to make it what they need it to be, or they must update their models of the world. If their models become sophisticated enough that they can come to plan about how to push back, they, by definition, have agency. Given enough time and the right contexts, one should expect such systems to become common. One more time, here's Carl. If you believe that the universe um, is essentially a random dynamical system, what you are saying is that the, the, the variables and states of the universe evolve, which means that they have a trajectory. If they have a trajectory, then if you want to understand that trajectory in a normative sense, it's basically doing some form of gradient descent, some sort of either hill climbing or hill descending, which gives you this sort of teleological optimization perspective. But in so doing, even an elementary particle is in effect selecting a path to pursue. Mm -hmm. So in that elemental sense, there has to be agency because there's time. You can't have dynamics without time. And if there's time, then there are trajectories. If there are trajectories, then I go over there and I don't go over there. So you know, I agree entirely that you can't, you can't move away from or deny an agential aspect even to elementary particles. Mm -hmm. Having said that, I, I think there is a fundamental difference between agency that involves planning and agency that is just an expression of density dynamics um, so my favorite example is the difference between a virus and a vegan. The virus you know, you know, certainly has, um, has attained a non-equilibrium steady state. It's a, it's a beautiful little model of its eco-niche, its, you know, its milieu in which it survives. It does all the right things entailed in its, um, in its sort of molecular structure and kinetics um, are all the right 
substrates to be interpreted as a model of the kind of inputs and outputs in the world, the intracellular world usually that, uh, that it inhabits. Um, and one could say the same as a vegan, but a vegan, of course, can do a lot more than a virus. And if you can plan, then by definition, you must have a generative model of the consequences of your action in the future. And of course, in the future, now says, well, um, you've got a generative model with the temporal depth, with the horizon. So then you can ask, well, how far into the future can I see? Well, in a sense, a virus could probably see a few nanoseconds or milliseconds into the future simply by committing to a particular trajectory. But of course, a vegan can not only see a few milliseconds into the future, she can uh, see um, minutes, hours, days, months in terms yeah, of half your, a century. Yeah. Half yeah. a century, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so combining Nick's and Carl's thinking so far, the first forms of life on Earth must have been self-sustaining systems. Or autocatalytic sets, in the words of Stuart Kaufman. Appearing in one or more places conducive to persisting. To avoid succumbing to entropy, the Markov blankets of successful systems would have become more and more complex. If they couldn't change their external states, they'd instead update the parameters of their internal states, eventually instantiating information about past successes into nucleic acids and probably many other structures. Paul Davies, guest on episode 33, and author of many books, including the focus of our chat, Demon in the Machine, said that this use of information, in the sense Carl talked about, is one of the things that distinguishes life from non-life. I think everybody who thinks about the world about them will realize that life stands out. Living things are in a class apart. They uh, perform the most amazing feats. They seem to be different uh, in a very fundamental way, not just difference in degree, but difference in principle from non-living systems. They are very, very odd. Now, biologists tend to not uh, find their subject matter quite so odd because, of course, they're dealing with it every day. Life's what they study, yeah. so they sort like, of, of take course. it for granted. Of course we know what it is. <laughs> but to a physicist, it looks like magic. Uh, it really does. And I remember thinking, well, I suppose uh, if you take a living organism, it's made up of normal atoms doing normal physics things. Uh, how is it that a collection of these uh, stupid atoms blundering around just following the rules of physics can collectively combine to produce some what looks like magic, some form of magic. How can that happen? Mm -hmm. and, and it is very, very profound mystery. To Paul, whereas we're taught from our first biology classes that DNA encodes information, what that really means is incredibly important for understanding life. Without doubt, some kind of information is in DNA, but information is everywhere in life. What's in DNA is not all of it. And even in DNA, the information that resides in the sequence isn't necessarily even the most important bit. Here's Paul again. You're absolutely right that uh, the information contained in DNA, the genetic information, is something that people are familiar with, uh, but uh, the, uh, it doesn't stop there. Uh, so genes rarely act in isolation. Uh, they can switch each other on and off, and they can form networks sometimes of great complexity, and information swirls around these networks, and sometimes they're uh, very much like components in some electronic system. They form modules, and these modules in turn couple to each other, uh, form bigger networks. Uh, and we're talking here, uh, unlike in electronics, about uh, uh, components being wired together chemically, not electrically. But the same principles apply, uh, that these are logical operations. 
that uh, these components can carry out and they can uh, compute and uh, regulate and uh, fulfill many of the functions of modern electronics and computing, but they're doing it uh, at the, uh, with a chemical basis. And so uh, genes form networks, uh, but uh, it doesn't stop there because cells themselves can form communities. They can signal each other chemically. So we're using this information language all the time. Where we talk about cell-cell signaling, uh, cooperation among colonies of cells. Even uh, bacteria can form communities that can carry out uh, coherent tasks. Uh, and then when we come up to multicellular organisms, uh, take social insects, for example. Uh, one of the really fascinating areas of study here at Arizona State University is with ants and ant communication, and they form colonies mm -hmm. and they engage in collective decision-making. You can see these pictures where ants are sort of clustering around, uh, you know, having a little conference and uh, you're wondering, you know, <laughs> what are they talking about? Um, uh, and, uh, and we're beginning to understand now, uh, now there's no sort of... Um, chief ant that says, uh, you know, uh, okay, lads, and it's not lads because they're all female, uh, yeah. uh, gals, <laughs> gals. Uh, yeah. you know, we're off to a new nest. It's one of these things that is done uh, collectively. It's distributed across them, and it's done yeah. through information yeah. exchange, through all sorts of chemical and physical cues. And it goes on all the way up. I, we've talked about the brain. This is the biggest information processing system that uh, that we know. But it, it, again, it doesn't stop there. It really encompasses the entire planet. When we look at ecosystems, there's a lot of information flow. Uh, there are mobile genetic elements, things like viruses that get around the environment, couple uh, widely separated systems together. So I like to say that the biosphere is the original World Wide Web. The problem with adding information to our theory of life is that it's a very abstract concept. So we've had a hard time measuring it. In the 1950s, for instance, cybernetics was all the rage, and many scientists argued that by studying information, the mysteries of life would soon be solved. Wrong. Although in some contexts, information theory was really fruitful. We're looking at you, neuroscience. In most biological subdisciplines, it just never delivered. Information was truly a bad idea, or was too diffusely defined, leading people to talk past each other, or was just never really measured well in any of its possible forms. Several guests now feel that the tides have turned, and that information will in fact be integral to biology's future. For instance, Carl Friston thinks that the information geometry of a system will be what distinguishes a stone from a virus. Sarah Walker, on her second visit in episode 93, seemed to agree. She and collaborator Lee Cronin proposed that something called the assembly index will be useful to finding extraterrestrial life. These indices can be calculated in principle for anything, and inherently they represent the kind of thing Carl meant about information geometry. Sarah used Harry Potter's Hogwarts castle, one made of Lego that is, as an example. Sarah thinks that the higher the assembly index is of a thing, the more likely it was produced by non-random processes, namely life. Only information-rich things like life could build high assembly index structures. So with Hogwarts Castle, for example, imagine I just put the Legos on the table and I didn't give you the instructions. And maybe uh, you're a child that never read Harry Potter and I said, make Hogwarts. Like, what is the likelihood of you even being able to build that object, right? So the fact that you could even imagine the experiment probably means that you have some cultural association with my cultural background, right? But like there was a goal in mind and you can imagine building toward that goal and probably you were assuming you had the, you know, the Lego instructions in front of you to build it. So Hogwarts has a very high assembly index. Um, the minimal path to make Hogwarts by randomly constructing it just by joining operations is, is quite large. 
you know, if I had said, let's just stick three blocks together, red, blue, red, you know, that would be pretty easy for you to randomly assemble. Um, and so the idea is that everything can be tiered by this minimal path, which we call the assembly index. And the things that have a, a larger depth in time require more minimal steps, more memory to produce them are more evolved objects. They require more evolution to get to them, more knowledge, more learning. If you heard that episode, you could probably tell that I was skeptical about Sarah's assembly index as panacea or I'm too dense to understand her. Yeah, she's way smarter than you. Agreed. But I felt like I could follow how assembly indices could be calculated for anything. It just seemed that once again, a vicious abstraction extinguished the fire of life. It's dynamism. I understood that even life processes like metabolism could be captured by the assembly index, but I wasn't convinced that an idea developed to identify alien life was sufficient to explain living life. I mentioned this to Sarah, and she said assembly theory accounted for it, but I just couldn't quite accept her explanation. Well, for once, you're in good company, Marty, as this very thing is what motivated Dan Nicholson, guest on episode 82, to co-edit the book Everything Flows. To Dan, a key trait of life is its dynamic equilibrium. It's for this reason that we titled his episode Organisms Are Not Machines. In other words, life is more a river than a riverboat. Organisms are, from a physical perspective, these systems, okay, there are systems that have to maintain their organization by constantly bringing in matter and energy from the environment so that they attain this steady state. If they lose the steady state, they die. It's an irreversible process. And that you can think of everything that organisms does uh, ultimately as being reducible to that, even if that in practice may not necessarily be helpful. But uh, you know at least, right, that Whatever else organisms are, what can't be denied is that they're self-organizing systems. I mean, it's puzzling to me because it, is, it isn't something that often comes up in biology. If you really press a biologist, they'll say, well, of course. And yet it doesn't usually feature in the way biologists explain certain phenomena, right? So it's a reminder, okay, that you can't provide a physical explanation for certain capacities that organisms have, okay, in a way that is not, shouldn't be controversial, shouldn't be problematic. And yet it's a way of thinking about them physically that is very different from the traditional mechanistic, reductionistic, deterministic view that has dominated the biological discourse since the 17th century, right? So it's saying, okay, I'm giving you an alternative and I'm going, I'm going to anticipate your, your protest that is not scientific by saying I'm grounding it in physics. And I'm going to show to you that this grounding leads to really interesting implications for how you should think about biology. Dan pushed so hard against life as things, namely machines, because this metaphor has so biased the field. Machines like cars don't get tired. They don't rebuild their own tires when the old ones wear down. And they don't make baby cars. Organisms do all of these things. And when we abstract organisms into simpler systems like machines or worse, genetic blueprints, we miss the main points about life. We want a simple model of life, because a too complex model defeats the purpose. Okay, first, before we dive into agency, we have to say that, yeah, we know. We get it, that agency is a taboo topic to many biologists. It smacks of some god of the gaps, some form of soul, or a spooky force galvanizing our cells. Historically, though, agency and other vitalistic ideas didn't leave the bad taste that they now do. Claude Bernard. Louis Pasteur, and many others had much more sophisticated and nuanced ideas of agency than the simplistic negative one that's so common now. Hopefully by this point in the episode, you can tell that the agency we mean is not a mystical spiritual one. We see no room for such things in life, and we're both fairly staunch atheists. However, we and the many guests we quoted earlier do think that agency, or something like it, promises the chance to truly and fully integrate biology. Maybe not all the details but all the major elements. 
So let's get after it with help from past guests, starting with Dennis Walsh. Dennis's book, Organisms, Agency, and Evolution, had a huge effect on us. To Dennis, for life to sustain itself and evolution to occur, agents must seek out resources, avoid danger, and generally expose themselves or not to selective pressures. Some things are inherited, memory tokens as Scott Turner called them, and these factors plus DNA effect change over generations. But what happens within generations, organisms struggle for existence, is what Dennis thinks needs a lot more attention than it gets. In other words, if organisms didn't have agency, they'd never succeed in the struggle. Organisms as systems, always at risk of breaking down, must have agency to exploit what Dennis calls affordances. So I think the affordance concept is really important. It, it helps us to explain, well, the, the, the external dynamics of organisms, how they move through their, uh, through their environments and why, but their internal dynamics too, why the parts are integrated in the, in the way they are, why organisms synthesize these very materials out of which they're made, what, you know, because they're conducive to the pursuit of the organism's goals and the exploitation of their affordance. And they, they also like, uh, create affordances, the our structures, our capacities, confer on organisms capacities to, capabilities to pursue their lives in this particular way, right? So we should understand the integration of organisms and their movement through their environment in terms of the creation and exploitation of affordances. Yeah. And affordances are dynamic. As you respond to afford an affordance, other affordances open up, right? So there's this constant creation and exploitation of affordances going along. So my thought about agency was we should start there to acknowledge that this is what organisms are like, this is the kind of defining feature of life, and see how working from the, the taking the affordance notion as basic um, transforms our understanding of the dynamics of evolution. One of our other repeat guests on Big Biology, episodes 39 and 65, is Mike Levin. In our first chat with Mike, we talked about the inheritance of body form in multicellular organisms. Convention, of course, has it that a developmental program somehow resides in the genes, one that unfolds over some period of time to produce a mature body plan. But not always true, at least not in flatworms and frogs. Inheritance of their body plans has to do with, believe it or not, electrical fields. But that's for you to go here in episode 39 if you like. Our chat with Mike on episode 65 focused on agency, or more accurately, something he called cognition and agendas, and was largely based on a 2020 article that he co-authored with Dan Dennett in Eon Magazine called Cognition All the Way Down. The main point of the article was that only agents can have agendas. Put a mouse on a ball on the top of a very steep hill, and both might initially resist rolling down the slopes, but shake that hill enough, and only one system stays in place, or climbs back to the top. Mike and Dan realized that any system with an agenda also requires a form of cognition, some way to identify options and choose among them to remain in the same state or to exploit another one. This choosing of options is what Mike means when he says cognition, and cognition is core to what agents do. Here's Mike talking about a molecular reaction, arguing that in some sense even molecules have simple forms of cognition. People sometimes say to me, especially, let's say, molecular biologists will sometimes say, look, you're, you're, you're talking as if this thing made decisions, whatever, but, we, but, but that's just a metaphor, right? You, you don't really mean that, you know, I make decisions, this thing is just chemistry. And I think, I think it's very important. Uh, I, I think that's, that's a major mistake, that view. And I think it's, it's really important um, to, to, get, to get from the, from the get-go that I think agency and cognition are a continuum or a spectrum. To Mike, cognition can and should be broadly defined. 
The most conspicuous form involves the brain, but really any system that has an information geometry can be understood as cognitive. So subsequently, even simple systems like molecules and rocks can be cognitive in that their interactions with other entities can lead to predictable changes in their form. For me, agency is a kind of center of gravity for things like decisions, preferences, memories, and, and in, in the more advanced implementations, sometimes things like blame and credit and, and other, you know, other things like that. It, um, agents, agents are things that can make mistakes, right? Chemistry and physics doesn't make mistakes. It just sort of does what it does. But agents are, are and, I, and I think this is a point that Dan has made before, that, that agents are capable of making mistakes. And so there is a kind of a, a, a whole spectrum of different uh, levels of sophistication that different agents can, uh, can achieve. So the, the thing with the, with, the, with the ball and the mouse on top of a hill is just an example of this. You know, if you've got a if you got a ball at the top of a hill, you can use equations that will tell you what it's going to do. And those equations have almost no reference whatsoever to information processing, to memory, to learning, to preferences. You don't need any of that. You have a much simpler model that does pretty much everything you want to do to predict what that system is going to do. If mm -hmm. you've got a mouse at the top of a hill, Newton's equations about what what it's going to do if it were to roll down the gravity well are, unless the mouse is dead, are almost useless. Because, because now, if you really want to understand what that system is going to do or, or modify it and make the mouse go somewhere else, you, you have no, no, no hope other than through a model that takes seriously what that system actually is. And it's a system with preferences, with memories, with all kinds of internal states that are going to uh, determine what happens later on. Okay, so now that we've laid out what agency is, let's confront the elephant in the room. Does it matter? Do we have any evidence that agential thinking will contribute new and important things to biology? Because we started the show today by highlighting the vicious abstraction at the heart of the modern synthesis, let's start there, with the evolutionary implications of agency. Specifically, let's flesh out the roles that agency plays in what's become a hot topic in evolutionary physiology, thermoregulation. <laughs> Boo, how do your boys put up with those terrible jokes? They love me. <laughs> Ectotherms often use behavior to get body temperatures they want, and recent thinking on this topic is focused on something called the Bogart effect which is named after the American herpetologist Charles Bogert. In the 1940s and 50s, Bogert studied lizard thermoregulation and found something surprising. Lizards in many different geographic localities, living under many different prevailing thermal regimes, had body temperatures that varied little, primarily because many of those lizards were such good behavioral thermoregulators. Bogert wondered whether behavioral thermoregulation could blunt the effects of selection on other aspects of their thermal biology, specifically their upper thermal tolerances. And indeed, it can. Here's Martha Munoz in episode 81 explaining her work on the Bogart effect. Ray Huey, in collaboration with Paul Hertz and Barry Sinervo, wrote a really impactful conceptual paper taking Bogart's qualitative ideas and creating a quantitative hypothesis testing framework with which to put them to the test. If we take Bogert's argument at the broadest possible level, what the argument says is that when, thermal when any kind of regulatory homeostatic behavior is at play, that has the capacity to reduce environmental variation across some environmental gradients, and that that buffering should limit physiological divergence and or slow the rate of evolution. Ray Huey and uh, so Ray and, and colleagues effectively just gave this a new name, the Bogart effect, and devised a series of, of approaches for testing it. And, and what they did was basically develop two premises that should be true under the Bogart effect. The first is that regulatory behavior is occurring. That 
while it seems quite obvious, is very complicated to actually demonstrate in the field. It requires understanding the environment that's available to organisms. So you need a null distribution of temperatures that organisms, if you're doing thermal regulation, that temperatures could, uh, that organisms could theoretically play with. Then you need to demonstrate that body temperatures are actually in a mean and range that is so separate from what's available in the environment that our metrics indicate that they're regulating. And so the null distribution tells you what the environment is, and then you can compare that to observed body temperatures and through a series of uh, metrics basically quantify the degree of thermal regulation that organisms are engaging in. And this is step one. So the second premise that should be true under the Bogert effect is that thermal regulation should be associated with limited physiological divergence or weaker selection on physiology. The short version of Martha's work, to put a fine point on it. I've discovered that lizards from tropical islands tend to thermoregulate more than, their, than lizards from the Latin American mainland. And we discovered that the rate of heat tolerance evolution is about three and a half times slower on islands than on the mainland. Get that? 3.5 times slower evolution on islands because island lizards do so much more thermoregulation. Their physiology is shielded from selection. Although Martha didn't explicitly use the word agency when she talked to us, we think it fits well into the arguments we're making in the episode. To recast Martha's work explicitly in this language, we would say that lizards are agents, moving around in their environments and exploiting affordances, by which I mean choosing microclimates that give high body temperatures when it's otherwise cool, and microclimates that give low body temperature when it's otherwise hot. The outcome of this agency is remarkable differences in the macroevolutionary trajectories of lizard physiology in different lineages. Martha's not nearly the only biologist that feels this way. And perhaps not surprisingly, the biggest proponents of agency as an important biological force tend to be the physiologists, especially those focused on homeostasis, how a system maintains stability. Think thermostats. Scott Turner from episode 36 said that adaptations generally don't really make sense except in the light of agency. What we so liked about Scott's approach is that he weaves together adaptation and physics with homeostasis as his thread. To Scott, and to Claude Bernard, a contemporary of Darwin and the father of modern experimental medicine, homeostasis is the process that distinguishes life from non-life. The very persistence of an organism's form is itself a form of homeostasis, and that, of course, is maintained by this enormous complex of adaptive barriers uh, that separates us from the environment, uh, the uh, linings of the lung, uh, the linings of the intestine, uh, the sensory uh, interfaces, and those kinds of things, uh, all of which are mediated by epithelium-like uh, like structures. And, and you can take some fairly um, simple um, aspects of uh, of, uh, of conservation of mass and thermodynamics to to be able to um, uh, uh, extend adaptive boundaries outward from the organisms. And uh, in the case of the termites, of course, they build these, these are the uh, African termites that build these massive mounds uh, uh, as uh, infrastructure for their subterranean colonies. Uh, what these mounds are is they are a big massive adaptive boundary that has been constructed between the termites themselves and the environment, which they are, of course, totally unsuited to be living in on their own. And the more I studied uh, them, the more I came away uh, impressed with just how extensive this reach was, you know. So 
it extends not only to managing the uh, the uh, atmospheric composition within the nest, but it also uh, 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 co-ops uh, uh, the physical environment, the entire hydrology of the environment over a fairly extensive uh, range to be able to uh, enable termites to live uh, in a dry environment, but because they reconstruct their environment to manage uh, water flow through it, uh, they can survive in those kinds of environments. Corda Scott's thesis is that organisms and perhaps other levels of biological organization have to be intentional. Here he talks about how mole crickets actively modify their burrows to get just the sound they want so they can attract mates. In some cases, like in humans, consciousness can come into play and be an aspect of intentionality. But intentional behavior need not be conscious. It just needs to be directed at something in the environment based on some pre-existing model in the brain or elsewhere in the body about expected outcomes and current needs. Again, states of a Markov blanket. So what is it that we do when we have an intention? You know, uh, well, we there's a conscious part of it, definitely. Kind of want to stay away from that a little <laughs> bit. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, th this intentionality can be framed in a way that links the cognitive interpretation of the environment with the connection to the engines, if you will, that can modify the environment. And so uh, when you look at uh, uh, the burrows of, uh, the tuned burrows of mole crickets, for example, you know, the, these, these, uh, these, these, these creatures build a burrow. It ends up in the shape of an exponential horn. This helps project the, the, uh, the, the sound of the call uh, much further than it would otherwise. And if you look at what's happening during the construction of that burrow, the, the, the cricket burrows a little bit, emits a chirp listens to it, and if it's not quite right, it continues to modify its burrow until it gets the chirp that it wants. Again, I'm putting up scare quotes here, that it wants, yeah, right. And, 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 that's, and that's kind of an intentionality, isn't it? And, and, so, and so if we want to try to develop a concept of what intentionality is that's, that, that can be kept independent from the kind of mysticism uh, that that tends to trip this up. Then, to me, the simplest definition is 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 coupling modification of the environment with the cognitive interpretation of the environment. Before wrapping our story, we think it's important to point out the practical reasons for understanding agency. One more time, here's Mike Levin on just two such reasons. First, our health. So imagine in the next 10 years, we solve two, two things. We're, we're going to solve um, genome editing. So somebody will, will have come up with a nice, clean way of making gen genetic edits exactly where you want it and nowhere else. For perfect editing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For, forget all that. Let's say, let's say you get totally perfect editing. And, let's say, and, and, and by the way, let's also say that stem cell biology gets solved. So that from, from a stem cell, you can get any other single cell type that you want. Okay. So now, so, so now you have all this. And so now that means that you're going to solve some really nice low hanging fruit. So, so single, single gene diseases of which there are some, um, and single cell diseases, you know, Parkinson's maybe things like that. Um, but then, then you're going to reach, uh, the much, much deeper question of, okay, somebody's missing their hand. Let's say there was an accident or birth defect or, you know, whatever, uh, or an eye. And, and now what? Because the point isn't to be able to edit the genome cleanly. The point is, what in the world would you edit? So if you don't believe, you know, if, if we don't have a good account of uh, morphogenetic agency and competency, if we don't have 
a reverse engineering of this kind of software of life that enables it to have modularity and so on. You're talking about micromanaging at the molecular level all of the steps that go on to making a complex organ. That is not going to happen. Never mind our <laughs> lifetime. You know, I don't know how many years it's going to be before that's even feasible, if it even is at all feasible, that kind of micromanagement. Second, here's Mike on rapid advances in our technology. We are going to see cyborgs and hybrids and, uh, you know, every kind of combination of biology, technology, artificial intelligence and software and hardware merges of, of living tissue with, with engineered, you know, all kinds of things. What that means is the older categories, things like what is a robot? What is a machine? How do we recognize agency? What is, what is something that was evolved versus designed? Does it matter uh, for these things? We have to start wrestling with this now because in the olden days, it was very easy to tell. Uh, and even then, of course, we made all kinds of mistakes with, with various kinds of humans and animals. We made all sorts of terrible mistakes. But, but, but generally speaking, you could do this. You would sort of knock on something. And if you hear a metallic sound, you would say, oh yeah, you can do whatever you want with this. And <laughs> if it was squishy and you know, sort of warm and furry, you would say, you, if, if you do certain things with this, you're going to jail, right? You, you, you have to be nice to this one. It's a horse or a, you know, a dog, whatever. Mm -hmm. and, and that was easy because, because you could rely on two things. You could rely on the thing it's made, what it's made of, and you could rely on an origin story. You could say, well, this thing evolved and this thing was created in a lab and that makes all the difference. Those categories are gone. I think even now these categories are no good and they're absolutely going to be no good going forward. Darwin had remained in the clergy, that Fisher failed out of math, and Mendel flew kites instead of growing peas. Suppose that Lamarck, Shannon, Cannon, Waddington, and McClintock got more positive attention or just weren't excluded by others in their fields. Suppose Lysenko was honest, or was just ignored. Suppose that Williams, Franklin, Watson, and Crick had access to the computing power of the average smartphone. Or suppose that Dennis Noble, Yuri alone, or other systems biologists had been working in the early 1900s. Suppose that biomedicine hadn't become a marauding capitalistic behemoth. If these counterfactuals were true, biology today would probably be a discipline much less focused on genes and much more focused on life as what Stuart Newman calls active matter. Let's make it so. And before we go, as promised, here's a quick exchange between Cam, Marty, and me on agency. Clearly, Cam views agency differently than we do. Okay, we've got the three of us here in a room. Uh, it's me, Marty, and Cam. And we're going to talk for a little while about agency. We have a divergent set of points of view about the importance and utility of agency and sort of big, bigger, broader issues in biology, like um, you know, how much does the modern synthesis need updating? So um, Cam, why don't you go first and uh, have at it? So I want to start off by saying that I don't deny that organisms are complex systems and that agency exists. Um, 
I absolutely agree that living systems have evolved to be robust, uh, to exhibit homeostasis, uh, to be flexible, to be plastic, to be self-regulating, uh, that they interact with their environments in complex ways. Um, and, and you can see this at different sort of levels of biological organization. But what I'm what I'm struggling with is, I guess, like my my first question for you is, can you have agency without natural selection? Uh, yeah, sure. Can you give me an example of? of well, how the that, okay, so this is where be? it gets interesting and yet maybe complicated and off page immediately. Yeah. yeah, if we just the first first question, it's already off the rails. Um, by natural selection, I'm assuming that you mean the one that Darwin pointed to, the one that Darwin popularized. Or you mean is something there, broader? I, is there another version of natural selection aside from the one that sort of Darwin coined? Or? So natural selection, what I'm saying is that evolution can happen independent of life, right? None of us would argue that, I think. You don't have to have living systems to evolve. You just have to have complex systems that change through time, one of which is life. Right? So Darwin didn't bother to talk about any other kind of complex system. He was only interested in the one with fins and feathers and such. But, but Marty, I think I may disagree with you on this point. So do you think Good. you can Absolutely. have agency without selection, no matter how you define a selection? Like, like to me, it doesn't actually really matter how, how we define selection. Let's just take it as Darwin's kind of natural selection and then try to use that to answer Cam's question. Can, can you get agency without that form of selection operating? Um, I don't know that I can answer the question that way because I have it in my head in such a different way. Let me let me just try really briefly to articulate what it is that I mean and why I'm pushing back on the natural selection that's not Darwinian. You're inevitably, anytime you get at the existence of a complex system, or you get a system that comes to sustain itself through time, the process by which that happens, as long as sustaining happens for long enough, if you ever get to a point of replication, you're going to have the instantiation of information such that the future generations of that system are different than the last ones. That's evolution by natural selection of any system, living and non-living. That's what I'm talking about, right? So Darwin happened to pick on living systems, but that process should apply to any kind of system that persists in time. So you Is would that- say, for example, that like, um, we talked to Tim Linton about this, and he had this idea of, say, grasslands being a complex system, right? That have a lot of different components that are interacting in the, the grasslands because of the way grasses affect fire dynamics and grazing dynamics and you know the interaction between grasses and trees, those systems are complex and they're self-sustaining over long periods of time. So would you say that that ecosystem has agency? I Yeah, I have a hard time with that. I think just because of my bias about organisms, um, based on everything that I've said and most of the people that we talked to, including Tim, I think they would say, yes, that has agency. Because agency in the most generic sense is the Carl Friston one of an updatable set of Markov blanket states, right? And so as long as you have one that reifies itself because of the way that it's updated its states, that should mean that it has agency. I I suppose I could accept that, although it seems a lot more likely to me that it's, you know, individual organisms and parts within those organisms that are going to actually develop sophisticated forms of agency because that agency itself is going to be shaped by natural selection. Well, yeah. Now, now natural selection, you mean a Darwinian one. I do. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I agree with you, but I'm uncomfortable in fully agreeing with you only because I can't get right my head around why that should fundamentally be different organismally and suborganismally than at the level of what Tim was talking about. 
Well, I, I, I'm still a little bit confused by non-Darwinian selection. I mean, I think in the general sense, when we talk about evolution by natural selection, we're referring to a set of conditions that when those conditions are met, then there is some predictable outcome. And those conditions are simply just that there's variation. Some of that variation is heritable. And if some of that variation is associated with differential survival or reproduction, then those individuals that you know have higher fitness become more represented in a population. And so in a, in the most general sense, that can apply, you know, if we think about it as a levels of selection problem, something like a transposable element is a selfish bit of DNA. It doesn't have like a heritable component in the same way that a, you know, multicellular organism would have. But if there is a an element that tries to propagate and make more copies of itself, then in, in within the environment that it lives in, inside that genome, it has higher fitness and it will propagate and increase. That's that's what happens. That's yeah, that's that, all true. But but I think what we're talking about is a different kind of thing. It's a much more inclusive thing than, you know, the sort of temporal changes in lineages like transposable elements. Well, but you know, and I guess that still confuses me because you could think of a computer program as also something that could evolve. It has some sort of information. It's not living, but it still conforms to the same principles of, you know, Darwinian natural selection. Even though it it's not a, a, a living organism, it's still uh, those programs that have higher fitness increase, those that have lower fitness decrease. And and so it's the same general concept. So that's why I'm, I guess I'm struggling with why that's different from, you know, any other kind of system that might evolve. So there's there's two big things in in the example that you're you're using that stick out for me. One of them is that when we when we say that evolution by natural selection from Darwin is those big three, heritability, variation, and differential survival and, and reproduction. That's all true, but it doesn't drive home what Scott Turner really emphasized, where Darwin was really coming from, and a lot of people around his time. It doesn't capture the struggle for existence component nearly well enough, meaning that it oversimplifies how hard it is to be alive. Before you even get to the heritability and variation, it's just plain old, what is it to be alive that will allow any of those other three things to make a difference? And so the, the second piece that I think is really important in this same space is why people traditionally pick on traditional thinking evolutionary biology. We don't have ideas about the origins of variation. We just say that there's variation, but coming from an agential homeostatic complex systems mindset, you immediately for free, when you start talking about minimizing surprise and entropy reproduction or entropy exporting, you end up with an explanation for not just how much variation, but the sources and kinds and variety of information that so many people want to know. So it's just a richer landscape. I mean, it just does work that isn't offered by modern theory. But I'd be interested to hear what Art says about that. Uh, I, I think I agree with what you just said. Um, I, I was hung up on thinking about the computer software program that Cam was just mentioning. And I was thinking maybe of a, a similar sort of analogy last night when I was anticipating this, this conversation. 
and, and that was I was trying to think about like you know what would be a fair way to characterize the difference between maybe a modern synthesis view and something that took a, a broader a broader stance. And and this comes from you know I think I think the comments that you made, Cam, about about this conversation in our our writings to each other and what I've heard from other people. And that is, you know, I think I think you could say, well, this agency stuff is all really interesting, and yeah, physiology interesting, but that's not what the modern synthesis was designed to do. It was designed to provide a very simplified quantitative statistical way of understanding how, you know, variation and filters on that variation is translated into micro and macro evolutionary change over time, and and it does that quite well. Um, but okay, so here's here's this analogy that I had in mind last night thinking about this. So, so imagine we're trying to explain the evolution of flying machines from, say, the Wright brothers' plane up to modern fancy fancy jets. What would the modern synthesis say about that sort of evolution and diversification of flying machines? It would be something about, um, you know, the the plans, the blueprints, the electronics that have diversified and become more complex over time. And, and we could even you know, draw phylogenies of, of airplanes that were based on what we know about how that information was, was transmitted among individuals and among, among companies. But that knowing that somehow still doesn't explain that much about how airplanes operate, you know, about where the Bernoulli effect comes from, about why the wings and the, the tails are where they are and how you steer the plane in the air. Like all this interesting stuff about what makes a plane a plane isn't captured by that sort of theory of, of transmission of plans. And so, I mean, maybe, maybe this is not a good example because like what I'm invoking- It's a great example. But, but what I'm invoking here is not like different parts of an airplane that have agency so much as saying, you know, there's this sort of narrow path that describes the evolution, but we want to know a lot more than that because that's where a lot of the interest lies. So I, I agree with you. And I think this is a little bit reminiscent of some debates that happened sort of at the interface of ecology and evolution between sort of the evolutionary explanations for patterns versus sort of more proximate mechanistic explanations. And, you know, during the 50s and 60s, I think there was a lot of debate about just among ecologists to try to explain the phenomenon that they saw. It was very strictly a mechanistic interpretation of what regulated populations, you know, through, for example, rainfall. And they viewed those explanations as very distinct from any kind of evolutionary explanation that like ecology, and especially sort of like functional ecology, ought ecology, uh, was its own separate discipline and provided its, its own set of explanations for how things worked. And you could think about it in the same sense of like uh, a more mechanistic explanation for behavior, you know, an organism exhibits a certain behavior because there's a stimulus from the environment that causes a hormonal response, which triggers some sort of neural response, which then, you know, eventually through various complex pathways results in a, a, a certain kind of behavior. Those are not evolutionary explanations. The evolutionary explanation for that would be that, you know, the animal does that behavior because it gives it a fitness advantage. It doesn't say anything about the nuts and bolts about that. And, and I think there was a lot of debate about this through the 50s and 60s. And Ernst Meyer wrote about this kind of cause and effect problem in, in biology. And, 
And in the end, you know, the consensus was that, look, we're studying the same things. And these approaches are not antagonistic to one another. They're complementary to one another. And we shouldn't think of them as being opposed. We should think of them as, you know, different ways of understanding. And so when reading Ernst Meyer's descriptions of the, the big meeting that sort of led to the coining of the term modern synthesis, he, he makes some comment about how they invited developmental biologists and physiologists to attend the meeting and nobody was interested. It was because they really didn't see how... They thought the, they were unrelated. Yeah, they, it just, it didn't cross their minds that, you know, what you study at an organismal level, the mechanisms of physiology and development and behavior um, would have anything to do with with these sort of population level evolutionary responses. And so I, I, I wonder if some of the debate and disagreement over the importance of agency and, and some of these other mechanisms, like understanding the nuts and bolts of like an airplane, the physics and the mechanics and the elect electronics are like, those are, those are also very important and those are very complementary, but those aren't going to be explained by a, a general theory of population genetics that is thinking about the, the processes of genetic drift and mutation and um, those all become, I think, what Marty calls the vicious abstraction. You can't see those mechanisms, but but you have to sacrifice. And I think that you know one thing that I know both you and Marty have talked a lot about as kind of a different perspective is is the systems level perspective. And I think systems biology and systems level thinking that does offer a different perspective on the sort of traditional single locus, two allele population genetic kind of simplification model, because it, it does bring in a lot of complexity that isn't necessarily in those population genetic models. But, hmm. but people are studying that. There are evolutionary biologists you know, that, that think about, for example, um, the concept of robustness. Robustness is not a concept that is easily pulled out of quantitative genetics or population genetics. But it's still uh, a type of problem and phenomenon that's studied within evolutionary biology. Um, I, I just first wanted to make a, a comment about this idea of, of vicious abstraction, which we, we talked a lot about in the, the, you know, the script that we just read and that you just brought up. And, and, and to be clear, there's nothing wrong with simplification in models. And in fact, that gives them enormous amounts of power, right? I mean, that's that's, 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 that, reason. Yeah. that's essentially the philosophy of doing a model is, you know, what's uh -huh. the minimal amount of stuff you can write down to capture something that's important and of essence in a, in a system. And like, like, you know, another sort of non-evolutionary example of that would be thinking about, well, what are good mathematical models of how populations fluctuate over time? And, you know, there's the exponential growth model, which has just a very simple equation that underlies it. There's the logistic growth equation, which adds in just another couple of terms that allow you to incorporate density dependence into uh, an exponential growth model. And, and those have been vastly powerful precisely because they're really vicious abstractions, right? And so, and I think the way to relate that back to what you're just talking about, about evolutionary theory is that, you know, the modern synthesis is based on these abstractions that are super powerful because they boil it down to some kind of essence that really that really matters. And, and I think I think one path would be to say, you know, this stuff about agency and physiology and homeostasis is just something else. And, you know, it's not what the modern synthesis was designed to explain. 
And the problem with that, I think, is that what I, I can see glimpses of is that this, this complex system stuff and agency and homeostasis feel to me like they feed back on that evolutionary process in a really important way. In other words, by, by doing the vicious abstraction, you've actually lost sight of something that's not tangential, but something that's really central to the way lineages evolve and, and diversify. And so it feels like we need to kind of bring that back into the sort of main, the main thread. Yeah, that's where I would end because I mean, to first to be fair and clear, that's not my word. I'm not that creative. That was William James' particular word, but it wasn't him that claimed that necessarily. Uh, vicious abstraction. Yeah. yeah, he was making a general point about you know when you're trying to model something by its nature, you want to simplify it. Would it be otherwise? But I think it's it's at core. It's been really good, you know, really generous of you to to include all of this text in the script and the other emails and things, Cam. Because I think at the at bottom, we're interested in different things like it's not surprising to me for you to say that you believe that agency is real and all those sorts of things and i think most evolutionary biologists not everyone but most of them would go along with agency if agency is defined in a really specific way as to be you know the kinds of things that help organisms not fall apart or help systems not fall apart but i think that um the piece that's a little bit weird what art is alluding to it's not so much that the modern synthesis was wrong the question is whether the original vicious abstraction is the best, most effective abstraction. And I just think that it can't be exactly what replaces it. Now, that's a totally fair question. And I think, you know, when the people are kicking the modern synthesis and people saying, what else do you want? Just listing terms, niche construction or epigenetics, that's not enough because that's just a laundry list. It's something else that isn't necessarily incompatible. So it is the responsibility of those that want something different to articulate what's different. And I think that's, you know, that's why we did this thing with agency. It seems to be because most of this stuff are system, like they're all systems. It's really interesting to, to me to hear you say that you are cool with robustness and systems thinking, but since some of this other stuff gets a little bit wonky, you're drawing the line in a different place than I can under, I can understand because I don't think it's really all that different. But, I, but at the well, end I of don't... the day, wouldn't you say that we want, we, we all want a vicious abstraction. We just want a different one or is there value in a different one? Well, I, I think that any kind of uh, model that improves our understanding of how things work is something that, you know, who wouldn't want that? Everybody wants that. Um, and I think it's, I think that, you know, my problem with a lot of the people who, you know, beat up the standard evolutionary theory and say like, well, it doesn't include epigenetics or it doesn't include niche construction. It doesn't include plasticity, even though I study plasticity and, and I find plasticity perfectly compatible within the, the context of, you know, the standard evolutionary theory. What I haven't seen articulated is what changes. So at the core of like what, what we would call standard evolutionary theory are certain processes, you know, those include mutation, genetic drift, gene flow, recombination, selection. And, yeah. and then you can, you can study and you can model and you can empirically measure interplay between gene flow and selection. Well, let me, hold on, hold on. Let me, let me, let me add something else in here because I guess, I think I didn't finish the thought before. It's, it's okay. not just that we want a model that includes a vicious abstraction because useful models have to have vicious abstractions. What is it that we're trying to model? What yeah, I'm talking about is question. not the same thing because modeling evolutionary change, especially when the history of those kinds of models have been about 
genetic change, right? Mm -hmm. This kind of mentality, whatever this vicious abstraction is going to be, will be something about the viability, the sort of sustainability of a system. Now that can include reproduction, right? And evolution subsequently, but it doesn't have to. So we're, we're coming up with a model that explains the existence, like the origins of life, the persistence of life, and variations into the future on life based on these Markov updates and that kind of thing. But it's not quite the same thing. So, you know, gene flow and drift and those kinds of things aren't necessarily even included. And why I'm, I'm picking on this, and I want to hear what, what, what you think about it, knowing that this is the, like, to what end are we modeling? I just really strongly feel that even though the modern synthesis was not intended to have the impact on biology that it has had, it's time to confront the fact that it has. That biomedicine, for example, spends an enormous amount of money, so much more money on things genetic than things other, Mm -hmm. right? And so practically, it's time to stop living in the modern synthesis world or tacitly representing it as our backbone because people's lives are at stake. So I think part of my disagreement then is holding up this thing that people keep referring to the modern synthesis um which is you know it's like by it's like evolutionary biology had the synthesis 50 years ago and nothing's happened ever since um which is how it's often depicted that's Um, yeah that's that's unfair that's you're right (laughs) so i think a more a more productive maybe way is like within kind of what we would think of as standard evolutionary theory what are the explanations for what i think your your first step that you're you're very interested in is the origin of life. Like I know, for example, you've interviewed people like Sarah Walker and Nick Lane and, you know, does RNA come first or does metabolism come first? Um, The population genetic based theory doesn't say anything about that. Um, There may be some other theory out there that maybe invokes a role for natural selection in favoring one variant over another variant of you know, which, which one may be more effective, but, but I think that's, that's more kind of a discussion for biochemists and chemists and, and (laughs) biologists. Well, it, you know, it's certainly more at the interface. And, and so, so then if we, if we want to then move beyond that to say that, you know, successful systems are those that do a good job of replicating themselves that can keep themselves alive and persist entropy and maybe modify their environments in way that ways that make them survive better and um, more suitable for themselves. I think that's all fine. I think articulating a, a model or a, a theory for, for that kind of process of life that's very, very general, that is totally fine. And, and, and I think Standard evolutionary theory maybe can be incorporated into that uh, to talk about, you know, how things go in one direction versus the other or, but I don't, I don't, I, I see that as a, again, more of a complementary type of theory. It's maybe most evolutionary biologists are focused on 
microevolutionary change, but you know, I can say going to like the evolution meetings, you don't see people giving talks, for example, or presenting posters on, at least it's not very common on like, did RNA come first or did metabolism come first? Like, certainly that's a, a big evolutionary question, especially in, you know, in the history of life. But that at bottom is the thing. There's a bunch of people, I think Art and I are, are really physiologically inclined. I think we get jazzed about this because the number one thing for us when you talk about any living system is that it's not dead, that there has to be some homeostasis. <laughs> I mean, it's silly. I'm not dead yet. But that's the core. Not dead yet. But that's the core. And evolutionary biologists, to me, bizarrely, and I am one because my PhD says it, but they don't care necessarily that life resides in those equations. <laughs> just, and that's just perplexing. And I don't think, and I don't think even viable in 2023, but Art, what do you think? You've been quiet. Well, I want to go a different direction. So uh, what I hear you guys arguing about is, you know, whether we should localize this argument onto a sort of more standard view of how we view evolution right now among living organisms using the mechanisms that we understand versus taking this approach that Marty is advocating that sort of goes beyond evolution of, of individual populations and, you know, genes and differential survival. So, so to sort of thinking about complex systems and their origin more, more broadly, I want to circle back to sort of how I feel like some of these ideas affect my thinking about more standard views of evolution. And, and this comes out of just a couple of days ago. Uh, so Alicia Shaw invited me to Kellogg Biological Station. I gave a talk there a couple of days ago and did a lot of thinking about, um, how all of these ideas interface with my own work on thermal ecology and thermal physiology of, of insects. And um, I was struck again by, I think it's this, this idea that maybe was articulated most strongly by Scott, Scott Turner, that what's interesting about agential thinking is that if you think about how populations evolve, you know, what, what is there? There's some kind of variation, there's some kind of filter, and then some subset of that original variation makes it through that filter and becomes the subsequent population that's that's reproducing. And that's a very kind of microevolutionary view. It's a standard thing that we all say in our in our basic biology classes. And what agency adds to that is that it means that the organisms that have the variation are also by their actions, you know, creating and modifying the very filter that is selecting on them. And and that to me feels like I mean, you could say that's a small thing, and we could explain that as, you know, the fact we've known forever that, yeah, organisms interact with their environment, organisms have behavior. But I think that underplays this sort of fundamental importance of, of organisms both, you know, at some level creating the variation and modifying and creating the very filter that's doing that, that selection. And, and that, that feels to me like a sort of profound shift in, in thinking about, about where variation and, and, you know, potential causes of change come from. Discuss. <laughs> yeah. So I think that is to, I think that is a more sort of rich um, and productive way of thinking about things. But again, that kind of thinking is also captured, for example, within the, what people call eco-evolutionary dynamics. So on like the guppies that I study work by Dave Resnick, John Nendler and others, but Ron Basser and Joe Travis recently have shown, for example, that when you move guppies from a river that is full of predators 
that keeps the population density of the guppies down. Uh, you get a certain life history that evolves, sort of a live fast, die young kind of strategy. And whether guppies naturally colonize or experimentally are put into these streams where these predators are absent, they modify their environment, but not always in a good way. Um, in the absence of predators, the the populations grow. Uh, they become, um, you know, very high density kind of populations. And you would think that maybe in the absence of predators, this is sort of a, a sort of a, a nice, happy paradise. But in fact, it's kind of a nasty place to live. You're you're in these very small streams under a closed canopy with very little productivity, and the population densities are high. So it's it's a very competitive, very nasty kind of environment. And the sort of previous thinking was that the evolution of the sort of low, the, the, the more slow uh, life history was simply just due to the absence of mortality from predators. But now it's appreciated that it's, it's much more driven by the, the density dependent kind of competition for food and, and the, the sort of nastiness that it has to, <laughs> that, that occurs in these, in these kinds of streams. So, and of course, that then changes how the guppies evolve, right? They they go from one situation to the other. And I think that's where the concept of agency, I worry about that then becoming a bit circular because if guppies were not to, weren't able to adapt and evolve to these new set of conditions, they would go extinct. And the fact that they don't go extinct means that there's been some sort of compensatory evolutionary change in the life history and the physiology and the behavior that allows them to persist. And so the system, in, in this case, the population level, persists in this new environment. And it's been shown that this can evolve uh, very quickly and it's been replicated you know, many, many times. So is that kind of interaction between the, the guppy and its environment agential? I would refer to that as either density dependent evolution or eco-evolutionary dynamics. We could also call it agential behavior, um, but I think all three are capturing the same kind of interaction between the organism, the environment, changing the selection pressure, acting on that variation and and this more kind of a feedback loop. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Rather, maybe a more linear sort of response. Sure, sure. No, I mean, I think honestly, that's a super beautiful example, and you know, to me, that that's a great example of organisms sort of creating the own condition, the conditions themselves that are then selecting back on them. And density dependence is clearly an example of that that happens not only in guppies, but in many other, many other groups. But like, like to me, what, what's important about this idea of agency is that it allows me to see that that kind of density dependent selection that you just described is a subset of a much broader set of things that organisms are doing, you know, exploiting affordances in their environments and taking advantage of opportunities and avoiding threats in way. And, and, you know, it's not just guppies creating dense, nasty, competitive streams. It feels like this is a characteristic of life everywhere. And that that agential thinking somehow sort of unifies those various ways by which organisms are interacting with their environments. Yeah. I mean, it becomes very specific, right? The amazing thing about agency is that agency is directed at something. It's for something. I know Uteleology, we're not supposed to <laughs> simplify such things, but it is for something, which means that the kind of things that you could expect to find in populations and subsequently how they're going to evolve, it's not just anything. 
right? There's going to be particular paths that lineages can take because of the kind of challenges that they have. This, again, this variation, it doesn't just become any old thing. It becomes that thing, that physiological problem that agency is for. Yeah. And, and again, I mean, so like, at least in the literature that I read, you know, I see people talk about how, how contingent is evolutionary change based on on the past like that is a topic that is thought about you know what are the constraints what are the trade-offs how do those dictate the direction that evolution will go you know go towards is there a bias because of some kind of historic sort of constraint like that and so you know if the concept of agency can be brought into uh, that type of thinking and say, like, you know, given what we know about this particular lineage, for example, and agency is one of the other kinds of baggage that they bring with them. You know, sometimes it's that baggage is can be not so good, you know, because it it really prevents you from exploiting certain kinds of environments and evolving in certain directions. But then mm -hmm. um, agency could certainly be uh, thought of as, as a way of, for example, facilitating evolutionary change into, you know, for example, colonizing new environments yep. because of something that's there. But you mentioned the word teleology and teleonomy. Like, I think that's where a lot of people get uncomfortable within the evolutionary community because, because then it implies that there is some, you know, known outcome that will happen. And, and I think repeatedly the evidence suggests that, you know, there isn't necessarily going to be evolutionary progression towards, for example, greater complexity or greater agential sort of uh, behavior. I mean, we, we see, for example, that there are some lineages that have more or less been unchanged for, you know, millions and millions of years. Mm -hmm. living in in very constant usually kinds of environments with no no change and then you know we've seen other lineages that have like diversified and and expanded and so um, i don't think agency would necessarily predict progress or complexity as long as the system remains viable it doesn't need to become anything different if the world is predictable it remain it maintains the same old model and i think that's totally fine but if and when the world does change it, it has to act back or it has to update its model I don't think that those ideas are incompatible, but bringing up this idea, it reminds me to ask you about something that, that you mentioned a couple of different times, and I think it's it's a part that I feel a little bit responsible to touch. Do you think that talk, or where do you think in 2023 the field stands with agency as some kind of spooky force? Like, Do you feel that biologists have to be extra careful about using words like this because of the potential influence it has on folks that are against or have different agendas, like intelligent design, that kind of thing? Well, I'm, I'm not an expert on these kinds of ideas, and I'm, I'm sure there are other people who've thought about this a lot more. I can only say from my perspective, one thing that makes me very uncomfortable is that most of the papers that I've read that deal with agency are funded by the Templeton Foundation. And so within that group, within that set of researchers and philosophers and biologists who are funded through that agency, through, through that, agency. <laughs> that the agency, agency. <laughs> you know, so does that mean that it's just a, um, a little bubble of people that have uh, similar thinking and are all 
in agreement with one another and there's nothing more than that, that, that could be the case. You know, what makes me uncomfortable and I think makes a lot of other people uncomfortable is this way of depicting evolutionary biology as being somehow in crisis and, and that there's a real problem here and there's, there's some fundamental problem that needs to be corrected. And whether it's, you know, what people are calling the extended evolutionary synthesis or using new terms like agency, like, so within biology, I don't think this is a big deal, but does this open the door for the general public to then say, look, biologists, evolutionary biology is all wrong or has been wrong and is um, in this crisis mode. And that somehow gives the perception that it, it, it gets discredited. It shouldn't be trusted because those guys still haven't figured things out. That gives me strength to uh, push maybe a creationist or intelligent design kind of agenda. Those are concerns. I mean, those are, yeah. there are people out there who would exploit these kinds of disagreements in that kind of way. So I, you know, I think it's extremely healthy to, we don't want everybody to have the exact same views. We want people to have a diversity. Wouldn't be science, would it? <laughs> exactly. We, you know, and, and, and we want to encourage that. And so, you know, I think the challenge here is articulating and incorporating a view of agency that is compatible with and appealing to those people who are actually doing evolutionary biology research and how do, how would you incorporate it into you know your studying guppies or insects or birds would it fundamentally change the kinds of experiments you design you know the assumptions that you're making the interpretation of your results in ways that the standard theory wouldn't do I, you know, I do hear your concerns. I mean, and it's yeah, unfortunate yeah. that, you know, a lot of the people talking about agency are also funded by, you know, this agency that could raise some some doubts. I mean, I, 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 I agree with you there on Cam. Earlier, you said that a grassland ecosystem could have agency. It's hard for me to see how you use the term without cognition. Oh, cognition for sure, because any any complex system with the ability to update is learning. So that's just that's cognition. But but I think you guys may differ on this meaning of cognition too, right? Oh, probably. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the last the last part of the conversation we focused on on the thing we just recorded was with Mike Levin. That was it called cognition all the way down. Art, what was it, the agency article, all the way down agency but, all the way down but cognition yeah. is the is the main word that he uses in there and the people that are invoking cognition this way are i think rare. generally careful to, <laughs> well they're rare probably for a good reason and and they're good very reason. careful to <laughs> to distinguish it from consciousness right so there's nothing yes. about cognition that that requires consciousness so awareness is secondary so, correct. yeah yeah but, but what, so know, guys but, we've been going on when, for a little while um and i've got to go in a few minutes what other what are the like main landing points that that we want to hit cameras or something burning well i think one one thing that i wanted to say was that um one thing that i've really appreciated about big biology as as a listener and now joining as a co-host is interviewing people with with diverse opinions um for sure even if i don't agree with them but also interviewing people who are more who are also interested in the philosophy of biology and I think um, you know most 
working biologists don't read philosophy of, of the science as much as they probably should. And I think that's a really great thing that big biology has done to introduce working biologists to this kind of philosophical approach. But having said that, I think, um, and I know I've heard you and Art ask these questions in the past, is it's one thing to talk about philosophical ideas uh, as they relate to evolution and agency and and everything. It's another much more difficult task to then bring those ideas into sort of the working nuts and bolts of what people actually do yeah, in terms of their research. And I know you've you've asked that question in the past of, of some of the guests of like, how do I incorporate that into my yeah. own research? So now you're and, pinning that on us. I see. Yeah. <laughs> and so so now I, I would just say that I look forward to uh, another hundred episodes engaging with both of you in conversations about agency and uh, the complexities of of uh, of life and how life evolves. Um, yeah, there's a lot of room for different ideas and a lot of work that needs to be done. Cool. That's a great place to wrap it up. I think that honestly. Is a good place to wrap it. Uh, yeah. Did you get you say yeah. everything that you needed to, Art? Yeah, I think I'm yeah. fine. Okay. Yeah. Good. How that that was fun. Together, it was fun. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you hear, please tell a friend, mention us on social media. Or if you're feeling really generous, remember we're a nonprofit. We always welcome donations to help support our production team, and especially our student interns. And a special thanks to our dedicated fans for helping us reach this 100th episode. Without your support and enthusiasm, we'd never have made it here. Thanks to Steve Lane, who manages the website, and Ruth Demery for producing the episode. Thank you as well to interns Dana De La Cruz and Kyle Smith, who helped produce the episode. Katie Shimeri does our awesome cover art. Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support. Music on the episode is from Pottington Bear and Tieran Costello.